Okay, CJ, you had your hand up a minute ago. You dropped it. Can you fill in for Kaftelli? Yeah, well, my, my main question was for Axel. I wanted to see uh, two things. One, if he saw the news about the Panzerhausen's finally being uh, in play in Ukraine. And then uh, also, too, what was his role in it? Uh, who do you have to talk to in the German political scene to make it finally happen? Sorry, uh, CJ, Axel's not here. Um, Axel's actually driving one of the Panzerhaubitze from Germany over to Ukraine right now. That's why he's uh, uh, not available. My question then uh, would be, if anyone knows, because perhaps someone knows German uh, media better than I do, uh, how much ammo was given along with that, because that's really the big difference here is this ammo can be used by all the systems. So not just for those, but for the other uh, Western ones in play. So if anyone knows that, I'd be uh, very interested because whether they're shooting at Snake Island or not, they'll make a huge difference. 10,000. Germans have provided, according to the list on, on their ministry website that came out, um, CJ, I'm going to DM this to you because you want to see this. Basically, the German Ministry of Defense has started, um, um, you know, by, by, by this point, probably somebody else DM'd it to you, but here you go anyway, uh, started publishing all of the stuff that Germany has sent and has promised to Ukraine. So this isn't a list of everything that's been delivered. This is a list of everything that Germany has promised to deliver. And on the list, it says uh, uh, 10,000, well, it says 10, whatever, 10,000 shoes artillery munition. So 10,000 rounds. How much is that for a... Uh, you know, seven Panzerhaubitzers. So, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm driving. Otherwise, I'd pull it up. So you're saying seven howitzers? And- 10K. Correct. 10,000 rounds 10K is what we're giving so far. Yeah, Germany gave 10K rounds. CJ, I don't hear you. I don't know if anybody else doesn't hear you as well, though. Uh, but Axel's just pulled over in his Panzerhaubitzer to, uh, to talk to you. CJ, audio check? Is it just me who can't hear anyone, or...? No, you're fine. Okay. Um, fine. I'm gonna get back to CJ in a second. CJ, no one could, uh, no one could hear you for the past minute. I know that you were asking uh, something, but we don't know what it was. He's still reading through the list I just sent. Yeah, I sent it to him too. Um, let's see uh, what he what he thinks of it. I think he was stationed in Germany for a while, and they're all military terms. I'm sure he's familiar with all of them anyway. I mean, I can translate it if necessary, but I think it's not necessary. That if you, um, it's actually quite easy to understand. Okay, right. Uh, shipyard, if you hear me, come up. You say you have news. We want you um, here. For, yeah. Where's the news? That's Axel. a good idea. By the way, um, I mean, if need be, we can put this. We can put this into the. Um, actually, I just saw that uh, the Germans failed to put up. Uh, that list in English and in French. Um, so that's a bit stupid, given the fact that uh, typically their main components on their web pages are listed in all three languages of the EU. Um, but we will, um, I mean, all three administrative languages of the EU. But I will do the following. We'll run this through a translator at a later stage, and then people can attach themselves to, uh, attach themselves to it. If Rayla has a moment to look through it, that would be cool. CJ? Yeah, no, I'm so glad you're here. I was just going to ask, because 10,000 rounds for only seven howitzers, I mean, that just goes to show you how, for better or worse, Germany, these these rounds can be used for other other systems, right, since it's all the the unified 155 round type. And so for just people's awareness, that's a very significant contribution on top of the 36,000 from America Weekly and the 10,000 from... Is it me or CJ breaking up? No, no, no. CJ, uh, CJ's driving through the woods somewhere, and 
it's not it's not the best. Um, let's uh, let's go to shipyard. Let let's have shipyard give his uh, update, and then CJ will reconnect whenever he's um, in a more reliable cell service. Uh, I mean, I I would have preferred he was in a reliable cell service. We could keep listening to his mellifluous chords, but um, let's go to shipyard. Morning shipyard. Well, it's not morning anymore, is it? Afternoon shipyard. Afternoon all. I've got a nice cup of tea. Um, don't actually have much news for you, but it's quite interesting news. So in relation to yesterday's funky oil rigs apparently blowing up, this morning we've seen multiple well, rescue vessels leave Sevastopol, with one of them being a firefighting ship. That's the easiest thing I could you know, describe it as. Uh, those of you interested, that's PGS-123. She sailed this morning. She tends to be the one that, you know, if there's a fire on a ship, she'll go out and she'll try and put it out. Additionally, you've seen one of the large tugboats of the bulk class. So this is the Captain Naden. She's, if you've ever seen a picture of the Vice Admiral Paramov, which is one of the Black Sea Fleet tankers that's currently in Tartus, she's a smaller version of that. She's got blue hull, whitish superstructure. She's a bit of a large tugboat. She sailed this morning as well, which is quite interesting. Um, I'm just currently conducting an in-look on those Ro- on the two Baikovs that were spotted off Romania. And I think I've got a definite ID on the second unit that's currently got the Helix. Now, I want to tell you about my thought process here, because this is a good way of indicating the ship. Now, what we've seen is, obviously, one unit's got the Tor. She's the third unit in the class. She's the Pavel Dezavin which then leaves the other three ships. There's a very nice image of the port, that's correction, starboard quarter, of her doing, what, 12 knots, maybe slightly more. And she's, you can't obviously see the helix on the flight deck. There is a noticeable pennant number that's been painted over in a slightly darker colour of hull grey. And it's further back to where the Baikovs would be. So it would indicate that she's either Sergei Kotov or the Dmitry Rogachev. Now, Sergei Kotov hasn't been to sea, or she hasn't been that far out. She tends to be loitering around Sevastopol, and her hull colour is slightly different. So, we've now, I, now been able to identify that this unit is the Dmitry Rogachev, and she is sporting a very interesting secondary ESM mast, which is very similar to what the Admiral Grigorovich currently operates with. This mast is small, it's black, it's got a little... Can only be described as a tiny emitter on the top. It looks like an emitter that you tend to find like SATCOM, but it's small and black. And yeah, it means that, you know, we've actually identified four di- visual differences between all four ships, which we can now help with the identification of all the units, which is good and makes me happy. You're very easily pleased, that's all I can say. Morning, by the way, mate. So, Shipyard, executive summary. What are the three most important things that you reported? Uh, three mo- most important things. Two rescue ships sailed this morning. One's a firefighting ship. And we now have an ability to identify all four Baikov class guided missile patrol vessels from a, vi- from a visual perspective. Thank you, Shipyard. I just ask for these sometimes because I know some people are driving and, you know, maybe they, they miss the little details and then I have the map in front. That's, that's fantastic. Thanks so much, Shipyard. CJ, let's try your uh, reception again. 
Well, I got four bars, so how does this sound? You sound clear. I just hope you don't cut out again. So. No, well, if uh, Shipyard missed out, apparently M777s, according to Russia, are targeting Snake Island, which is a very silly thought. So I'm not sure if you saw that or reported that. But again, complete nonsense, as Wings and I pointed out earlier. No, just to keep it short, uh, huge commitment from Germany. Not, you know, the howitzers are great or whatever, but the 10,000 rounds, as we as we saw at the beginning of this uh, opening in the Eastern Front uh, for the Donbass, you know, Russia was able to put out 60,000 rounds a day. And Ukraine was shooting about five to 6,000 rounds um, a day to a week. And so now, finally, with Germany Germany turning on the spigot and U.S. able to get uh, almost twice as many rounds through, uh, they're gonna, Ukraine will finally have the actual ammunition it needs to, to hold their own moving forward. So big development from Germany. I just I want to know what role Axel had in it because I'm sure he, uh, he brought it up the chain and made it happen. I'm just a bystander. Yes. If it were to me... A lot more, a lot more stuff w- were to be delivered, but uh, uh, I think there are people in the German weapon system industry who can make things significantly easier for the German government to decide and expand and uh, intensify the delivery frequency as well as uh, um, ramp up the overall size of the deliveries. And there's a couple of things in there. If you go through the list, CJ, there's a couple of things which are good, and there's a couple of things which are very disturbingly dis- disappointing. But that's just what it is. But the 54 M113s uh, at least are included as financed by Germany. So Germany is doing something for the, Dan- for the Danes who have actually committed to doing so. That's good. And that the, um, uh, say, the anti-ammunition um, for the Gepard is not only listed as uh, the 6,000 <laughs> at, at the beginning, but they have, they've added 53,000 as suppose it's good that the um, small arms uh, ammunition has gone up to 5.8 million is good. Um, so there's a couple of things which are good in there. There's no question. But um, I'd like to see a lot more pickup trucks actually being supported. And uh, with a bit of luck, we'll make a difference there. No, great. And actually sort of a similar question for Shipyard and Wings while we have them here. Is there any sense, you know, obviously there's a chance that harpoons were used in these most uh, – recent bout of fighting is there any sort of sense of whether that'll be given in sort of a weekly supply a monthly supply you know obviously i'm tied in very closely with the artillery consumption but i guess i'm not quite clear on the future commitments of more anti-ship missiles because obviously uh it's sort of a similar thing where you need so many to execute uh you know so many targets i think uh, and i think shipyard will agree the uk problem is um our, our block typhoon is approaching obsolescence and we actually don't really have enough for all our surface combatants at the minute. Um, therefore, I think the I think whatever we gave was was probably a one off because um, we we need eight harpoons um, per Type forty five and eight per Type twenty three. And even though not all of these ships are up and running at the minute, um, we've got a lot lot of ships at sea. The ROP tempo is really quite high at the minute. So I I reckon we probably gave one delivery and then the, the, the subsequent harpoons will come from another supplier. I don't know what you think, Shipyard. Yeah, just to back that one up. Yeah, our harpoons are not great. So much so that I'm pretty sure if they try to lob them and actually fire them, I think they'd either be fine with the actual launcher itself or it wouldn't go. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was a one-off. We just, sold it. We just gave them whatever we had in storage, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you. What I'm, what I'm hoping is that this will speed up the interim missile um, question and um, we'll go for block two. We are, because um, this is just getting out of hand now. The, 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 the fact that we're still using those harpoons, it just absolutely beggars belief. And now they're on about not even having a replacement till the um, the hypersonic weapon system comes in. Uh, and, and then we all know that's going to be late, four times over budget, and it'll probably be shit anyway. So I don't know why we just don't go with Block 2 ER and, and have done with it. It just makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and minimum integration as well onto the platforms because it's just another harpoon. It'll need a little bit of work, but um, Block 2 ER on, on 45s and 23s would be fantastic. To be fair, Joey Kidd came on board QE and said we're going to get naval strike missiles, and that never happened. So God knows. CJ? Yeah, so, you know, Wings said something that piqued my interest in terms of you know reaching the obsolete obsolete era you know something that was going to be changed over to a newer block or a newer type of missile uh and wouldn't be used by uk forces so if you look at you know what was given to ukraine in terms of anti-tank missiles things like n-laws javelins and and also stingers for anti-air it were things that were also 40 years old and sort of um not being used by the regular forces of these militaries i assume however you know a harpoon being a much more complicated and complex missile system that there's a difference between you know taking a 40 year old javelin off the shelf and taking a 40 year old harpoon off the shelf correct um yeah because you're you you're talking about the vehicle launch um version so the fact well if i said the fact that we supplied them with some harpoons says to me there's been a um fast procurement project put on to ensure that they can be integrated onto a land-based system i so i i think the danes so we know the Danes actually kept the launchers uh, and all the equipment for a rainy day, which was um, remark- remarkably long-sighted of them, actually. Um, what might have been the problem is the Danes had, had the launchers, but not the rounds. Um, and there was a, um, a fast development program just to integra- integrate our rounds onto those launchers. Um, that, w- that would make sense to me. They're probably entirely doable. Um, that's a, it's approaching obsolescence, the Royal Navy um, harpoon system. But would it be good enough against a Russian ship? Yeah, probably. I, don't, I, I, I doubt there's... I've not seen anything to say that there's an availability problem with the actual missiles that we carry, to be fair. I don't think it's approaching sea dart levels where the, the final firings, we were finding that the boosters were falling off or the thing was just plopping into the sea. So, yeah, Ex-Royal Navy harpoons, probably probably sufficient for the mission. Um, but I still think they'll husband them, just in case. I, I, I'm still erring towards Neptunes hitting that tug and maybe Neptunes hitting these rigs, if this is true. That's, I'd use up my Neptunes and then I'd keep my harpoons in reserve, to be honest. Can I, Doman? If you have news, go ahead. The island of Zaimi was hit with concentrated blow using various forces and methods of defeat, during which the invaders su- suffered significant losses. The military operation continues and needs information silence until it's complete. That's the latest update from Snake. Source? I'll send it. VSL, what's the source? You're getting a DM. Okay, then I will declare what the source is in a second. Thank you. Excellent. Hopefully that's true. Hopefully, um, you know, this is finally going going on and is going to be, uh, I don't know, they'll get the snakes off. I'm sure there's some sort of a joke here. Right. Uh, I like when... There, there are multiple domain, uh, FYI, but I only copied one. 
Yeah, this looks like this looks good. This looks relatively yeah, Ukraine SHS. This looks relatively reliable. Um and I think that something similar was posted by Operational Command South previously on Facebook about five minutes ago as well. So it looks it looks reasonable. Uh it looks believable. Hopefully, uh hopefully it's true. Right. Uh let's look for more information when they deign us with more information, when they bless us with more information. Um Hopefully something is finally going on after this. Like, we've been speculating about this for a month on here, exactly how it's going to happen when it inevitably happens. So I'm, I'm very excited to hear how it actually happened in the end. Um, in the absence of more, of more information right now, let's go to I Like Wendy and then to Auntie and then let's break up daily again. I Like Wendy. Thank you, Diamond. Thank you for this space, the wonderful charity that is Mirror Aid and all that uh, you've been doing for the cause Ukraine for the last 119 days. Um, I've just got a quick question on the information that was released by the German government uh, that Axel kindly posted just now. Um, 30 Gepards and 6,000 rounds of ammunition. Um, each barrel of that Gepard is, what, 500 rounds a minute? Um, there's two of them on each one. Uh, so we don't have to be uh, uh, maths geniuses here to uh, establish that um, that is a rather rather inadequate amount of ammunition. Um, is is there any clarification on 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 if this is a precise figure, uh, or is is this a typo? Is this a misprint? Because um, th- those two numbers just stand out as quite incongruent. Thanks. You're saying thirty gepards, fifty three thousand rounds each is just a few thousand per gepard, right? That's it's not very much. Uh, I think it's less than I think it's less than that. It's five five fifty, I think I read. Um per barrel, two barrels, six thousand rounds. And it did it didn't specify per vehicle. It just no, said thirty gepards. So the whole list says fifty three thousand when it comes under flak panzer munition. So that's 53,000 altogether uh, ac- across 30, of course, that would make about, you know, just under 2,000 per gepard. So just over 1,000 per barrel. All in all. I see. Oh, I must. I, thank you, Dermot. I, I must have misread that. Still, that is um, unquestionably an inadequate amount, given the rate of fire and uh, the use in theatre of, of, of these vehicles. So... If you look at the whole list, I'm guessing, are you looking at the one on bundesregierung.de? Correct, okay. yes. So so there are two lines. If you The line that says 30 gepards, including 6,000 munitions. But if you scroll about 15 points higher up, where it says 10,000 artillery munition and then 53,000 flakpanzer munition, that's the 53,000 on top. So it looks like it's 59,000, about 60,000 altogether. So about you know, um, 2,000 per gepard, about 1,000 per barrel between the 53,000 plus 6,000. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, it does. Th- thank you. That's very helpful. Um, <laughs> uh, I can see CJ's got his hand up. would love to hear his, his qualified views on this. Thank you. Yeah, no, I was just going to kind of assuage you. I like Wendy because, you know, obviously we want to be critical, but I think it's a it's a good amount of ammo because you have to remember t- two key things with the these sort of short range air defenses. The first being, you know, they only shoot in one second burst, if that, because, again, they're trying to remain hidden. And also with these things, the the machine gun or the, the cannon portion of short range artillery is like a last defense. 
and personal defense weapon. The reality is you see the 500 stingers and those are the things that could be attached. That's where these things will be doing the most amount of damage is their ability to integrate radar and stingers together to take out aircraft, not necessarily from the guns. That's kind of like a, a last ditch effort thing. So I think uh, hopefully more Germ- Germany will give more because maybe Ukraine will be shooting more than a, or Ukraine will be shooting more than a, some other country in another situation considering their air force you know, doesn't have air superiority yet. But I would just say it's going to be a combination of missiles and the guns, and also they only shoot for a second at a time. So, yes, they shoot very fast, but in very short bursts. Awesome. Thank you, CJ. How many would they uh, shoot in a burst? How many munitions? How many rounds? Uh, I mean, maybe uh, our naval guys might be able to speak a little bit better about this, considering the CRAM is a little bit more comparable to this sort of uh, machine gun. But it's like a couple hundred rounds within a second or two and then that's it and you're not trying to like trace it across the sky because that also gives away your position um but again the range on the guns is between two and three kilometers but the range on the missiles of course is you know five to seven kilometers so you're hopefully not shooting helicopters out of the sky you're hopefully getting a missile lock much further out so you're, you're not in any danger makes sense um excellent let's go to anti yes so i'm looking at the list from the Bundesregierung as well. And uh, I'm wondering because uh, I see that, sorry, the 10,000 Schuss Artillerie Munition, but uh, from my understanding, it's referring to a total amount that is in the process of being sent. And I don't see anywhere information here that that would be a sort of a a daily, weekly or a monthly delivery. So uh, isn't that, I mean, still that's, that's like a good amount if it was a sort of recurring uh, delivery, but I, I see not, no information here that indicates that it would be some sort of a uh, continuous uh, production or delivery. And I so, um, yeah, no, you're, you're right, Antti, but I, what I would point to is if you look at, for example, the American and UK uh, weapons listing, it doesn't say it as a weekly amount either. However, every week when it's posted, um, it's actually an increasing amount. So, you know, I would just say we'll be I would be positive about it until, uh, you know, about a week passes and then take a look and see, you know, this is something I think in actual spoken a lot about this, that Germany can give a lot of, uh, you know, especially if they only want to give up a few howitzers, they might as well give up a F ton of ammunition to help the cause. And so um, but yeah, like even though the Americans haven't said that we're giving this many rounds a week. I'm just when I say that I'm extrapolating based on the weekly totals that I see, which thankfully have steadily been increasing. Right, right. And uh, the information you you got about the uh, that the Panzer Hobbits and Berlin Theater that was was that the uh, uh, posting of, of the uh, Ukrainian defense minister? Yeah, I got it from there, and then also I, I followed up and saw on the um, what do you call it the German. Uh, defense minister also posted as well and sort of i think ukraine is right. the first ones to post but uh, that's the, all i'm going off right now is the, the ukrainian defense and G- german defense minister so i assume it's a uh, pretty credible if both are saying it so do you think that um, even though the naturally the defense minister in germany is only re- referring to the seven that they're sending but uh, isn't the total amount uh, 20 with the uh, dutch ones as well no, it's 12. It's seven uh, German, five Dutch, I think. Oh, right. That's my impression, anyway. Um, 
CJ, we've got a couple couple extra people up um, at some point. So I, I keep getting this question. What is a howitzer? Is a howitzer the same as a cannon? Why isn't anybody talking about cannon? Can you please give a quick primer what the difference between a cannon and a howitzer? Yeah, perfect. This will be a, a good way to end my time with you all today. But um, so a howitzer, you know, it means something that can fire over the horizon. Uh, in both an indirect or direct fire way. So you think you're shooting straight at it like you're shooting an anti-tank gun or over the horizon at a higher angle. A cannon refers to anything that's smoothbore and only shoots direct fire. So a weapon system that hasn't really been used in almost a uh, hundred years plus. But the only important difference, of course, is a howitzer and a mortar. A mortar being something that typically is not rifled and shoots, um, you know, basically as everyone knows, a mortar, but that it has fins on it that spin to give you that same sort of rifling effect as you get in a howitzer, which is also rifled. So uh, there's a lot of archaic artillery terms. The only two that really matter are, are mortars and, and howitzers at this point. Thank you, CJ. I hope that clears it up for, uh, for everyone who keeps writing to me. Because, you know, then I answer and then they don't believe me. And I say, oh, I have to ask CJ sometime. Thanks, CJ. Um, let's go to you. Uh, thanks. Um, I've got a question to Axel, if he's listening. Uh, do we know where the additional around 50,000 ammunition for the Gepard came from? Because, uh, you know, it was up in the news a lot that uh, Germany doesn't have a lot of munition for, uh, ammunition for the Gepard left and uh, that the Swiss producer, Erlikon, doesn't uh, want to produce them or to give uh, export allowance um, because they want to stay neutral so um, did we dig them out of some uh, unknown storage or where did they come from do we know uh, i think axel's away for a second uh, maybe fixing up the panzer habits that he's driving sorry um Cartelli, let's do an audio check no luck Michael, we're gonna get... I, oh i had a question about satellite about satellite imaging um does anybody can buy any images? Like, looks like Russia is buying a lot of uh, satellite images showing Ukraine in different shape and form. It's western part, uh, basically different part of Ukraine. So, like, is there any... Well, I guess it's just anybody can buy anything, right? You, you cannot really block um, at your will who is buying what. Gunny, any idea? Good morning, Peter. Uh, oh, sorry, mate. I was distracted. I'm looking at all this NATO stuff that's going on in the Black Sea at the minute. Sorry, Gunny. Um, quick question from Castelli. Satellite images, just anyone can buy the ones that are commercially available and don't the Russians buy quite a lot of them then? I think that's roughly what it, what it was going at. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, of course they will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll buy it using third party, um, third party accounts and stuff. Um, and and that's probably why don't don't forget the images are are, are not the true images. They 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 won't be as um, as defined. The the ones that are for commercial sales. So um, it's a bit of, it is a bit of an art taking taking data off these things. I I look at some of the things um, Portland and Ocean um, get hold of, and I, I it's just blobs to me. To be honest, I haven't got a clue what's going on there. That's why I take their word for it. But yeah, it's commercially commercially available. Don't forget, the Russians do have their own um, um, satellite reconnaissance capability as well, and they will be flying 
I suspect that they're flying reconnaissance aircraft of their own around the theatre as well. So they're not going to be, they, they won't be short on, on data. But um, yeah, I, I mean, for instance, just have a look at your local naval base, no matter where you live in the world. Just have a look at the quality of some of the photos on Google Map. I can zoom in on Portsmouth, Plymouth naval bases. Um, and, you know, it's not quite good enough. I can see the bloke on the back end eating a pasty and having a can of Coke, but they're phenomenal photographs and for um, for planning and things. Um, certainly in my old job many years ago, I used to despair at the quality of photographs of, of NATO establishments. Um, I, um, but I've also used it to look at Russian military facilities. If you remember the, the, the twin strikes on the refinery and the military fuel depot, um, and it just shows you how, how incredible modern technology is that I got myself a street-wide uh, street view of a Russian uh, military depot, and I took a drive round on my phone around the perimeter and identified where I'd enter camp and where I'd leave camp. Um, it's phenomenal. So this this stuff will be getting policed at quite a high level um, because they, they, they are very useful to um, everything from terrorists to state operators. Thank you, Gunny. Uh, let's go to Tom and then to Peter. Tom. Good afternoon, guys. Um, yeah, it was just a, a quick point on uh, sort of production of things like uh, ammunition. Um, this is this is somewhat of a separate point from the supply of um, weaponry that we already have in the West, as I think Dominic and I have discussed in the past. When there are weapons that are just sat there, not being used, there's really no excuse to not send them to people in Ukraine because... You know, realistically, who on earth else are we actually going to use these weapons against? So we may as well send them to help the Ukrainians because the Ukrainians are only going to use them to degrade the Russian military anyway, which are the people that are going to be a threat to us. So whilst we don't want Western militaries to be completely naked and without arms, um, we we really should send as much as we can possibly spare to help them. But on, on the production of weaponry, so this is, you know, making new laws, making new javelins, making new uh, ammunition rounds, whether it's for a howitzer or, or for a, a Kalashnikov. Um, I think there's this maybe mistaken idea that actually we've got industrial capacity that's just sitting idle waiting to be turned on to start churning these things out. Um, these weapons are probably things that have been developed over decades and probably a you know, for some of the more complex munitions, they probably only make, you know, a few hundred of them a year because in peacetime, you don't need that level of production. So the, the costs of having it all available, um, you know, would be significant. So one of the things that I was curious about is, you know, how long does it take to gear up these kind of things? And I look back to World War Two. I think I've shared this anecdote with some of you guys before, but I looked to Great Britain's production of Spitfires in World War II, uh, both because it's an iconic World War II weapon that everyone knows about, but also because it was kind of state of the art around that time. And I looked at it during the Battle of Britain, which took place about nine months into the war and was probably the point when we were fighting and losing uh, the most amount of aircraft. And th the numbers were really interesting. The first, the first month production in, in a factory in the West Midlands in Birmingham region where I live, they only made 10 of them in a month. I think the second month was something like 20, the third month was something like 30 or 40 aircraft. Um, but that continued to be scaled up. And by the end of the war, you know, five years later, they'd made 12,000 of them. So 
I think although it's it's really frustrating that, you know, the Ukrainians aren't getting ammunition and things quickly enough, I think this is going to continue to scale up. And unfortunately, although this is going to take a while, as this continues, you know, Western industry is going to scale up and scale up and provide them more and more, whereas Russian industry is going to get degraded and degraded, uh, not so much because of the economic sanctions, but because of the technological sanctions, the fact that they can't get microchips to make more missiles or tanks. So as this goes on, I think the Ukrainians are going to be more and more supplied, um, but they can't be supplied fast enough. Um, those those were just my thoughts with a comparison for World War Two. Danny, if you want to answer that, and then let's go to Peter. Yeah, I, Tom, we're going to have to disagree. Um, the, the fact that uh, a British battle group was deployed to Finland, that we've enhanced the battle group in Estonia, that... Um, the Royal Navy's working uh, about as hard as I've seen in a, a very long time um, and that um, Eastern Europe is being flooded with American reinforcements says to me that there is a remains a very real possibility that we will be fighting someone. Um, these are not cheap movements. Um, there is reinforcement um, in the East for a reason, and that's because there is an existential threat remaining to NATO. I think people forget that um, people forget the human factor involved in this. It only takes one bad decision by a commander somewhere and we will be potentially in a shooting war with Russia. That's how it works. It nearly happened in 1984 with Abel Archer, um, a computer glitch that sent Russian PVO skyrocketing into maximum alert. And the Russian ballistic missile forces subsequently went to maximum alert and rounds were nearly fired. One man stopped it. One man looked, a colonel, duty, looked at the data, scratched his head and went, well, if the Americans launched an attack, why would they only fire a few missiles? Why isn't this overwhelming? And he called it, called it off. Uh, South Korean airliner knocked down by a Russian jet jockey on the instructions of a, a PBO commander who, who was overly aggressive. Um, an Iranian Airbus knocked down by uh, the Vincennes, um, even though all the all the indications were it was a civilian flight. So never dismiss the human factor here. There are very large forces on both sides gathered, effectively nose to nose. Therefore, we need to keep some stuff back because there is still the possibility, no matter how remote, that this will go sideways on us very quickly. Someone will make a miscalculation. Someone will get in the way. Someone will misinterpret an act and we'll be popping rounds off at each other. So we need to keep stuff back. Um, it's not an excuse, not not at all. But there is going to be a finite level where self-defence, the need for self-defence will kick in alongside the need to render aid. Um, and that's going to be a balancing act. But we, I don't think we can throw everything at the Ukrainians. We need stuff back just in case. Yeah, no, that, make, that makes sense, Gunny. And uh, obviously, I agree with you. You know, we've got a battle group in um, Estonia, I think. And so obviously, we need our tanks, we need our endors, etc. there, so that our troops can, can fight if need be. Um, even if all we're trying to do is sort of fix Russian troops in place, because obviously, we don't want to start a war. Um, our troops have got to be able to defend ourselves. So that was why I said, obviously, we can't send everything, we can't leave our armies sort of, you know, naked, so to speak. Um, Ironically, though, you know, you mentioned about like British and uh, American troops like reinforcing NATO borders. We're amongst the countries that have actually sent the most arms wise. 
what I'd be curious about is, I don't know, let's pick a country, Spain, right on the western side of Europe. I don't know what the Spanish are doing and I'm not meaning to pick on them. But uh, as far as I know, I haven't heard anything about Spanish armed forces moving to the eastern NATO border. And neither have I heard anything about Spanish armed forces sending weapons. Of course, I may be wrong and please correct me if anyone knows. But, you know, in the instance that like armed forces aren't going to redeploy to reinforce the NATO border, there's even less excuse for them not sending arms, if you see what I mean. So I guess for those that are going to reinforce the uh, the NATO border, actually, they'd have the greatest excuse for holding back some of their weapons, as, as Gunny's just explained very well. Um, but for those that aren't, they've got the least excuse and they really should send weapons to the Ukrainians if they're not going to send their own troops to, to protect NATO. Um, does, does that make a bit more sense? Yeah, do you want me to put it in less diplomatic terms? Um, uh, you, you always do, mate. Yeah. Um, if you're going to hide behind the Poland, um, the Baltic states, the US uh, and the UK, um, that's fine. We'll do that for you. We'll look after the rest of Europe. Um, all you have to do is send the stuff that you're not going to contribute and you send it to Ukraine. And we'll keep back the stuff that we have um, to make sure that you're safe and secure. Sounds like a good deal to me. We'll secure the Eastern Front. You supply the Ukrainians what they need. I have no problem with that whatsoever, mate. I just wish that was the case. Some countries seem to want their cake. They want to eat it and they want it sprayed with squirty cream with hundreds of thousands on top. Um, but hey, that that's Europe, isn't it, really? Yeah, unfortunately, there's a number of NATO countries that are neither pulling their weight in terms of their military spending, nor uh, deploying their forces in a way to support the rest of NATO, nor sending enough weaponry. And I think that's... Uh, and that's fairly inexcusable because effectively what they're doing in a way is uh, they're letting other people bear the burden of defence on their behalf and they're benefiting from it um, without helping as much as they should. Um, would, did you agree with the uh, sort of military production side of things that these things do take a while to spin up? We haven't just got warehouses full of bombs and rockets like we maybe had in the Cold War. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, the, this is a historical thing, though, isn't it? So um, you you run down your military, you run down your production capability. There is a war. Um, people die. Bad kit. Not enough ammunition. Not enough decent uniforms. Not enough rifles. You uh, speed everything up. You produce at the end of the war the weapons that you should have had to start. You've got enough ammunition at the end of the war, it's just a shame you didn't have that at the start. And then when the war's run, one, you run down uh, production, you reduce your armed forces, um, you give them shit kit, and then the next war comes along, and then the vicious cycle starts. If that sounds a bit sort of negative, um, yeah, it is. Uh, and I think anyone in the military will um, endorse what I've just said. Uh, for us, in the forces, it's a, a continuous um, feast of famine. Um, unfortunately, in order to get the feast, many people have to die invariably. So, um, you know, just as an example, UK tank production. I mean, look at the absolute shocking shite that uh, the British Expeditionary Force had to take over to France in 1939. And they got their asses handed to them. Um, the first tank, real, good, all round, battle worthy, well armoured, reliable, good optics, good gun tank came along in the form of the Comet in 1945. There you go. How many thousands of, of, of Royal Armoured Corps tank crews are, are under the soil in Africa 
and France and Belgium and Holland and Germany because feast and famine. That's that's just how it works. I think I've seen one, at least one RAF flight going direct from Belfast, which is, of course is um, home of the in-laws. So I suspect that flight was picking them up direct from the factory. How often that happens, I don't know. I don't follow um, flight tracker enough, really. But um, that shows you the urgency with which um, resupply had to had to happen that week, at least. I suspect they were really burning through them then. Um, and it was going direct from um, producer to customer. Um, quality checks, not even going into storage, um, being flown direct to Eastern Europe and then distributed. So... Yeah, it's going to take us a while, but we, you know, it's politicians. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sort of, I'm quite sort of dis- not despondent. I'm resigned to the fact that um, there may be some sudden kind of investment um, during this and maybe after this to resupply. But we'll, we'll, we'll be back to the crap socks um, and only thirty rounds to fire on a range day soon enough. But unfortunately, this that's just that's just how we work in the military. Can, can I ask a, a quick question to Gunny? I can see Peter's got his hand up as well. I think but Peter probably I'm... will respond to your original question as well, Tom. And maybe we can say... Oh, OK. Well, it's... To the next OK, one. I'll, I'll come back and ask that to Gunny in a second because it's the second point. Peter? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Tom and, and Tom and, and Gunny as well. I've been really appreciating uh, the conversation. I actually came in to propo- uh, ask the space to maybe help me track down an open source question. Uh, I'll leave that for the latter bit because I thought this conversation was extremely important for everyone to listen to. It's happening in the United States. It's happening elsewhere. And it's this question of defense spending. Uh, three thoughts came to mind. One, I don't, uh, Tom and Gunny, I don't think you guys are too far apart from from each other. Uh, I think you're kind of looking at the same problem set from just a slightly different perspective. It's compatible. Um, Let's get some perspective here, though. Warren Buffett once famously said, it's not till the tide goes out that you get to see who's been swimming without shorts. And what this war for Ukraine has revealed uh, is that many, many, many countries have been out there in the water without swimming trunks on. Uh, And uh, now the tide has gone out and they've realized, oh, wow, we are woefully unprepared to defend ourselves and our friends if a war came. Uh, That's the first thought. The second thought is something we've talked about on this space a lot before. And and I think Tom and Gunny, you guys both agree, peace and tranquility are not cost-free. And what uh, February 24th revealed to the world is that uh, it's going to cost a lot more money to maintain peace and tranquility uh, in our shared Euro-Atlantic space, let alone Asia. So we're, we're going to have to invest more. But that's that's easy to say. Let's look at the numbers. Uh, Lend-Lease 2.0, the 40 billion dollars overall 54 billion dollars that the united states alone has just allocated to support ukraine 19 billion of that is going just to replenish the stocks that the united states has provided uh, to ukraine that's stingers and javelins and artillery shells all the things we talk about here 19 billion dollars is going just to replenish our stocks for scale the uk which is one of the best NATO allies we have, uh, spending 2.2% of its uh, total GDP on defense. I mean, high five, Britain. Well done. That is about 25% of the UK's total defense budget that the United States just allocated to replenish the stocks that we sent to Ukraine. So when we talk about scale and we talk about preparing, uh, Gunny 
Gunny rightfully says, look, we have to hold something back. Uh, this could escalate and we'll need something to defend ourselves. That's a good point. And Tom, when you're pointing out, hey, can't we send more? That's also a good point. But this is ultimately going to come down to that old political debate between guns and butter and for nearly the entirety of my lifetime, starting in 1989. Uh, we've been able to enjoy peace and tranquility at relatively or zero cost uh, to ourselves in the form of defense spending. So um, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm interested in, in a quick reflection from you, Tom, or you, Gunny, uh, and then I'd really love to ask my open source question, which can help uh, an urgent issue right now. Um, yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll sort of comment on that first. There's, there's a difficulty when you do something which makes a problem go away to then convince the people that you need to keep doing it. So I'll give an analogy which hopefully isn't controversial, like um, lockdowns during a pandemic caused cases to reduce massively. And then because they had reduced massively, people would think, oh, we don't need a lockdown. And then you stop doing it. And then suddenly there's loads of cases. The analogy here is that, you know, spending a lot militarily and getting a very, very decisive military victory as we eventually got in World War Two albeit at massive costs of lives and money and economies and cities, meant that, perhaps in the addition of nuclear weapons, that we've managed to have a very long peace. We haven't had a big war like this in Europe um, for a very long time. I mean, the former Yugoslavia was pretty horrific, but maybe not quite on this scale. Um, and I think the problem with that is, is that a really long, prolonged period of peace leads to people wondering, why on earth do we need to spend all this stuff on military? Or can't we just, you know, spend it on other things, you know, butter instead of steel and, and get fat instead of strong? Um, the problem is it's then, as Gunny said, it's not until actually a lot of people die that you suddenly realise you need to spend more on steel. Um, and I'm reminded again of, of Sun Tzu that says, you know, the purpose of war is to win the peace, but the purpose of peace is to prepare for war. It sounds pretty cynical, but I think that's probably something that, you know, Gunny and, and the military people in this room probably understand better than the uh, the soft civilians like myself. Um, those are my thoughts. I don't know if Gunny wants to expand on that. Uh, yeah, bang on. Uh, absolutely. P people's attention spans are um, notoriously low. Um, and then when you deal with a democracy, you have a, a sizable number of our fellow citizens who can place Ukraine on a map, much less um, explain to you what's going on there. The, what, what they're interested in is the petrol pump on Thursday um, and the fact that they can't go to Marbella um, next year because uh, money's tight. Therefore, what, what, what's the easiest thing to go for? Defence spending um, tends to be a nice, easy target. I would also say as well, part of the problem with defence expenditure, certainly here in the UK, is the procurement and purchase process. Um, it's farcical. 2.2 uh, is actually not a bad amount of money to spend. I just don't think the taxpayer gets value for money. And the reason the taxpayer doesn't get value for money is because defence industry is full of sharp operators and procurement in the um, certainly in the UK is full of far too many people who get starry-eyed at shiny kit and get the wall pulled, pulled over it. Um, <clears throat> Ajax. I mean, just for instance, what an absolute monumental waste of money that has been. Um, we have developed a vehicle the size of a tower block that actually injures the crew. I mean, that's just astonishing. At no stage of this multi-billion pound project, did anyone say we need to pull the plug on this? This is shit. 
it is not going to work. It's going to cost a vast amount of money to, to um, even get functioning properly. Um, and in terms of engineering, it, it's an absolute cluster of the highest degree. And it's cost us a lot of money that could have been spent on other things. Um, and it, it's time for us to stop going for the, for the um, really high-end ticket stuff. And then I, I get that you do need the best kit that is out there. But then we constantly change our requirements. We alter what we want out of it. We demand add-ons. Um, this is not unusual. You know, if you look at, at, at many tank development programs through the decades, something that started out at 30 ton has come out at 50 ton. Um, so we, we need a fundamental shape up of how we purchase gear. I think we need to go more for bespoke bespoke but off-the-shelf solutions get value for money not go for super duper not even been used um and and be very strict about who who's on the procurement make sure that they're competent people with no business interest potentially when they go outside and look to our allies and buy kit that fucking works get kit but fine if we've got to replace it in 15 years fine it, it comes into surface it's battle proven. It works. There's a logistics trail. We don't have to tinker with it. Um, we the, the, There's a, a program in place from allies where we can train up the boys and girls to use it. And if that means it's only good for 15 years, fine. I can live with that because it's kit that, that is going to save lives on the battlefield. To, to be a first world country and to still be using 432 armoured personnel carriers, I mean, for God's sake. Is this the best that we could do? In Iraq, we were, we were putting the boys and girls in snatched Land Rovers. I did, that's dire. If, that, if this was a civilian organisation, there'd be murders because we lost good people through crap kit and bad procurement. And I think that's something probably true across NATO. Um, and the, the, you, you'll find often the taxpayer is happy to pay for defence. What the taxpayer doesn't like is to pay into defence and then hear horror stories about equipment not working and money wasted on projects that get binned three years after initiation. That's where they kick off, and rightly so. You know, there's there's lots of good kit out there. Let's just let's just get out and let's just buy stuff that works and and stop blowing money. And that will make us stronger. It will give us better equipped militaries. It will give us bigger militaries, hopefully. Um, and then we'll we'll be better placed to face future threats. Because because at the minute, as I say, if you look at four three two. APC, FV432, designed in 1953-54, I think. Um, and we still put people in it today, which is it's just an excuse. Don't, don't get me started on procurement. It, it infuriates me. I think that's a good point, Gunny. And it, it strikes a, a chord with me because too often I, I see it here in our political debate. There are politicians who view defense spending as a large industrial subsidy uh, and if the question becomes well if we're you know subsidizing this part of industry why don't we just take that money and subsidize a different part of uh, our industry and the ar- the counter argument is always this is not a subsidy this is to protect our sovereignty it's to protect our homes it's to protect our friends and we need to look at these platforms and systems uh, through the lens of what are they designed to do and ultimately they're designed to kill enemies and destroy things and achieve national uh, requirements and and i think you're you're really drilling into that um, 
that part of the debate, which is important. Uh, Doman, I won't derail our conversation by asking our British friends why they don't just take their N uh, their National Health Service budget and dump it into the military, because that would create a 30-year controversy in this space. Uh, it's kind of a joke, gents. But um, I do have a question that might have been answered in this space, and I, I have been trying to track it down. Uh, in the last few 24, 48 hours, the Russians have announced that they have taken two American POWs in uh, Ukraine. Um, they, uh, they're calling them hostages, or frankly, uh, the Russians are doing the same thing, uh, treating them the same way that they treated the two British citizens, uh, or excuse me, British fighters in Ukraine uh, who um, were taken POW. They're saying that they will not be given protections under the Geneva Convention, etc. cetera. Uh, that's gross nonsense, of course, but does anyone in this space have a clear source they can give me where uh, I can point to uh, the unit that these uh, Americans were fighting in? Uh, I haven't been able to find that online yet or on social media. Uh, Domin or anyone else in this space, have has there been um, uh, a, is there a reference point I can find uh, that identifies which unit uh, these two Americans were fighting in in Ukraine? Hey, if I can jump in here real quick to answer Peter. Maybe, of course. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the two that I know of, their nicknames were uh, Bama and Hate. Uh, one of them's a white American, one of them's an Asian American, if, if, so if we're talking about the same two. They were fighting with the International Legion. Perfect. That's what I needed. That is exactly what I needed. Uh, thank you. Uh, that issue is important because the Geneva Convention is extremely clear. If you are a soldier under arms fighting in a war, uh, you must be given protections under the Geneva Convention on the treatment of prisoners of war. The Russians are claiming that the Geneva Convention, this Geneva Convention doesn't apply to quote unquote mercenaries. However, Articles 4 and Articles 5, Article 5 of, of that convention explicitly says they should be given protections. And if there is a question as to their status, then you must treat them as POWs until it can be determined what their status is at some later date. Uh, the Russians are once again violating the laws of war uh, in the treatment of captured prisoners. And that, uh, Raver, thank you so much. Do you have a, um, a source off the top of your head or someplace I can go to? Uh, I, I'm the kind of analyst who just likes to include his footnotes when he writes. So, uh, oh, what was it, NPR? No, was it, was it 